0: Why doesn't he wear a helmet? He is too young to speak the creed, and so too young to wear a helmet. Then he's too young to fight. One does not speak unless one knows. Is that not the creed? Well, I know. Perhaps this lesson is for you, then. Pocketheads, Heads, Tigar, welcome to the 197th audaciously engaged in aerial combat episode of Mandavision, Nargai Tom, and thank you so much for checking out this small, independent Star Wars podcast. Remember, the best way to reach out to us is, of course, via social media, where we are at Mando underscore Vision on Twitter and Instagram. Please feel free to email the show, MandavisionTom at gmail.com. Be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and share this show with all the Mandalorians in your covert. How is everyone doing? Welcome back. We're, we're a little bit on, a, on an augmented schedule this week. Things are a little different. Um, but I think it's going to benefit you, the wonderful listeners, the wonderful members of Buckethead Nation, uh, because there's going to be more shows this week <laughs> because my schedule is so strange. So the plan, as of this recording, you will have this episode uh, by midday on Thursday. All right? We will be focused exclusively on... The Mandalorian Chapter 20 for this episode. Tomorrow, you will have another episode on your hands where we will get into the latest episode of The Bad Batch, Tipping Point. Uh, A big episode, a lot going on, a lot to talk about in that one. And then, if all goes according to the plan I have in my head right now, there will be a third episode dropping this weekend, a special bonus show, where we're going to talk about some of the Star Wars news that's going on. Uh, And that'll also give me a chance to... Uh, uh, engage uh, with some other things that are popping <laughs> on the show right now as well. So get ready. It's going to be, be a big week here uh, in Buckethead Nation and a lot of podcasts to listen to. But I think it's going to let us be a little bit more focused. I, you know, I, this, the schedule up to this point had been sort of necessitated based off of my schedule at work and life things. Um, I, I don't really enjoy... Having to talk about the Mandalorian and the Bad Batch on the same shows. I'd rather give each one its own sort of uh, uh, room to breathe, if you will. But that has not been the case this season so far. But we're going to be able to do it this week. And and I like that. So And again, my schedule sort of is, is allowing that. Uh, because it is sort of a weird schedule that I'm on this week. But... No promises for the future, but we'll see what we can do about making sure that uh, maybe if we can close out the these, season of The Bad Batch and Mandalorian, uh, giving each episode sort of its proper uh, breathing room uh, for us to have a conversation about it. We'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed on that. Uh, things are, are constantly changing, constantly in motion. And, and again, just stay tuned on social media. Uh, keep your podcast feed you know ready to go and, and refresh it often, and maybe you'll see new episodes But I'll keep you all posted as best as I can. So that's what's going on there. Uh, We have... Again, it is the day after The Mandalorian and the Bad-Bass dropped their episodes. uh, And we have a really interesting episode of The Mandalorian to talk about, in my opinion. Um, There is, of course, a segment of the Star Wars population that's, like, bumming on this episode. Uh, I've seen a lot of claims that the show sort of meanders and is wandering aimlessly. And... You know, it it's it sort of is getting this unfair comparison, in my opinion. Um, you all know how I felt about Andor, um, but I think to compare the Mandalorian to Andor does does both shows a massive disservice because uh, they they are apples and oranges, and and they, they they sort of stand on their own for very different reasons. Uh, the Mandalorian has always sort of been um, mm, and. I hope this doesn't come across as like an insult because I don't mean it to be one at all. But The the, the Mandalorian is sort of like a spiritual successor to the Star Wars animated shows that came before it that Dave Filoni was involved in. It's sort of a spiritual successor to Star Wars The Clone Wars and to Star Wars Rebels. So the fact that it has more of an episodic feel to it, I think makes a ton of sense. And also they it allowed us to sort of re-inject uh, some of the uh, classic elements of... of George Lucas's inspiration into the show, like having, you know, season one had a very big Western vibe. Season two, we got into, into a lot of Kurosawa kind of inspired stuff, you know? Um, so, so the Mandalorian, I think, is its own flavor. So when people get a little upset that this week's episode, oh, they knocked the runtime back down to 30 minutes. Sometimes 30 minutes is all you need. If there's one thing I can't stand in on, on television shows and in films, it's sort of like this, this 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 notion of of like just like pulling the taffy and stretching it out as far as humanly possible. Uh, and you know what happens when you pull taffy a lot? It gets real real thin in the middle, and and that's when you'll start to lose me because I'm just like, wow, this is all just fluff and padding, right? Like who cares? Uh, a 30-minute episode, if that's what the story calls for, okay, let's roll with it. I'm I'm fine with that. Uh, You know, sometimes there are episodes of the show that I feel like, oh, man, they could use another five minutes here or there. But, you know, this is a show that also keeps a lot of things close to the vest. Uh, You know, it it doles out information on on its own time schedule and its own timeline. And I think as an audience, we have to be patient and we have to sort of respect the decision of the creators. Because uh, at this point, we we have given our trust to Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni. And by and large, they've delivered a show that always entertains. And there's nothing wrong with just being entertained. We don't have to have our, our, our religion uh, blown to pieces or, or reaffirmed in, in whatever case works best for you. <laughs> so this, this show, accept this show for what it is. Uh, if, if you have critiques and criticisms of the structure of the show, of, of the, the dialogue, of all those things, those are fair. That's, those are fair criticisms, and you can certainly have those. But I think comparing it to Andor, uh, you do... Uh, a a disservice to 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 everyone involved in both shows because they're they're not in competition with each other they live in a beautiful uh floral bouquet that that can exist side by side with each other you know and and as far as like the runtime goes you know that 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 information seems to be coming out ahead of time um by several days and it instantly garners reaction on the internet (laughs) based off of the runtime and that's to me in my mind that's crazy because you have no idea what's going to happen within that a lot of time frame like people got really excited when episode three was like 58 59 minutes long whatever it was but then they were really unhappy that so much of it was spent with Pershing right okay great so you go back into 30 minutes and you have a much more hyper focused episode on Din Djarin and, and, and Grogu and people seem upset about that it, it Star Wars is in this just really unenviable position of not being able to win and then that, it's not it's not cool it's not a good look uh, I, I don't know what the balance is for Star Wars fans, for us, to, for us all to be, like, happy as a collective, <laughs> but let's just just, just just chill. That's all I can say, just chill. You know, everyone loved The Last of Us on HBO, uh, and and the season finale was the shortest episode of the entire season, I believe. It was, you know, something like 43 minutes or whatever, and I thought it was, like, super intense. So what do I know? I mean, what, you know, what do I know? And <laughs> But, again, I think Star Wars fans, we just have this thing. We just want to complain about stuff it, when things aren't what we want it to be. Oh, boy. But, again, that's a rabbit hole that we do not need to uh, work our way into today. Let's go ahead and talk about this episode of The Mandalorian because it is a noteworthy episode. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot to sort of parse through. You can uh, – like I said, if you want to knock a little bit of the three elements in this, you can. It's fair. It's fair. But by and large, I find it to be a very enjoyable episode. It has excellent action set pieces, like much of The Mandalorian has always had. Uh, we have a wonderful flashback sequence that provides a lot of context for things going on with, with a certain character. And I, I, again, we, we do sort of move the, the Bo-Katan and the Children of the Watch plot point a little bit more forward. Um, just because we're not happy with the pace of that, that's a different question. That's a different, that's a different argument, if you will. But I think, by and large, this is a show. This is an episode of a show that is enjoyable, and I think we'll look back on because, again, this is the midway point. So, you know, maybe maybe there's a lot of table setting going on, moving the pieces into place. But the payoff's going to be there. You know, it's going to be there. They got four more episodes, and I don't don't tell me you don't think they're going to bring it home. I'm pretty sure they're going to bring it home. So so let's let's talk about this one. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, the Mandalorian season three, episode four, chapter twenty. The Foundling. Original air date yesterday, March twenty second, 2023. Uh, written by John Favreau and Dave Filoni. Directed by Carl Weathers, who does a bang-up job with the action sequences in this, because there's a, there's a lot of them. Uh, there's a lot of action pieces in this, and uh, he does a, a wonderful job with it. Our principal cast this week, of course, Pedro Pascal, Latif Crowder, Brendan Wayne as The Mandalorian. Katie Sackhoff returns as Bo-Katan Kryze, Emily Swallow is the armorer. And returning... To the screen for our Star Wars viewing pleasure, probably long overdue in many many people's opinions, Ahmad Best steps onto the screen as Keller and Beck, bringing a character to life that I was completely unfamiliar with because I had never seen that Star Wars uh, Jedi Temple Challenge show on YouTube. Uh, just wasn't on my radar. Had no idea about it. <laughs> so what a delight to find out that that character actually already existed in canon. They just kind of brought him into the forefront. So a, a wonderful... Uh, return for Ahmed Bess, uh, an actor who uh, was much maligned by the fan base back in the day, uh, so much so that he had a lot of uh, mental health issues that he had to uh, come to terms with and, and address and deal with and, and process. Uh, so wonderful to see him back on the screen, uh, and, and, and by and large being uh, fondly embraced by the community right now. So that, that's just excellent, excellent stuff. Our plot this week, Din Djarin returns to the hidden Mandalorian covert. That's it. They don't put that, like, trouble ensues or anything like that. But that's exactly what happens. Trouble ensues. And we're going to talk about that trouble right now so you know what that means. It is time, my friends. Strap on your buckets. Let's go. I scouted where it lives and mapped the location. There. The nest. It flew a long way. I will go get him. The mountains are too high. If we use jetpacks, the beast will hear. It would kill the child. These are no higher than the peaks of Kaer I used to climb them in basic training. I'll fly to the foothills, scale the rest of the way on foot. I'll join you. Pazvisla, Vizla, and join the Shriekhock training team to accompany you. I will pack extended lariats for your launches. We must avoid explosives and blasters for the safety of the foundling. So we open... Back at the hidden Mandalorian covert, uh, we still don't know what planet it's on because it's just that hidden. Um, but we're starting to get the impression a few minutes later into this episode that the world in which they are are hiding out on uh, is is very dangerous, full of lots of predators. It's not just that giant uh, crocodile turtle beast uh, living in the, in the in the in the nearby waterways in front of their cave. Um, there's more going on there. Uh, but we open up on a huge Mandalorian training sequence. Uh, we see Mandalorians working on all their weapons, all their combat skills, whipping around their jetpacks, firing grappling darts and blowtorches and shooting into the water. <laughs> it's a very interesting way to open the episode. Uh, it's probably the most buckets we've seen on the Mandalorian thus far. I mean, it's it's a huge, huge sequence where uh, uh, they're just engaged in training one another and uh, what I sort of thought was interesting to note was was that, that Bo-Katan sort of walks among these, um, uh, uh, we'll just say young Mandalorians, right? Because uh, we I think we all can fairly confidently state that none of them have the sort of battle-tested readiness and skill level of Bo-Katan Kree's. So it's interesting that she's sort of observing here as... Um, I don't know, like I said, the most experienced member of the team, but you, not exactly eager to impart any of her knowledge with these Mandalorians that she's unfamiliar with. And per, it, perhaps it's because she still feels like a bit of an outsider amongst them, uh, even though they did seem to welcome her into the clan after, uh, after the armor sort of absolved her of her sins and, and removed the, the, the title of apostate from her as well. Um, but again, Bo-Katan... I think she, I think Bo is working very subtly on how to sort of ingratiate herself into the children children of the Watch. I think she's paying attention. She's looking. She's learning, and and noting the skill level of these these Mandalorians that she now finds herself surrounded with. Uh, since the Night Owls all have abandoned her, and and she now needs to find a new army if she's going to retake Mandalore. Uh, so she's observing. Um, <laughs> off to the side, we see Grogu. Uh, and, you know, it seems like he's doing the, the Jedi thing where you just sit around and you move rocks with, with the Force, right? Well, there's a little bit more to it than that uh, because it turns out it's, it's like these fun little hermit crab kind of creatures. Uh, but Din Jaran will not let this day of, of training go to waste for Grogu. Uh, it, it is time for him to, to really sort of begin his Mandalorian training, you know? Uh, we've seen Din over the course of this season so far sort of imparting some, some vital skills to Grogu over the, over the season, uh, particularly when it came to like navigation, reading the star charts, and and you know kind of kind of working the N one right to a sense you know being able to, able to tra- traverse the stars if you will. Uh, so now it's time for Grogu, the very very diminutive Grogu, to engage in training against a, a Mandalorian apprentice. Uh, we learned a very important distinction in in the Children of the Watch's culture, uh, which is which is a foundling and an apprentice. That's sort of like level. The entry level is foundling, and you graduate to apprentice. So, what we saw in episode one with Ragnar, uh, the child going into the water, getting the helmet placed upon his head, he goes from foundling to apprentice. He moves up the ranks. Now, I guess the real question is does, as is revealed later in this episode, we know who Ragnar's father is. So, does foundling still apply? Or does do they get like younglings, or are young, all younglings foundlings in the Mandalorian culture? We'll get some more clarity on that, <laughs> hopefully as time goes on. Uh, but Ragnar uh, gets challenged and and against Grogu, right? Din sort of instigates the whole thing. Uh, and and listen, Ragnar, he judges Grogu by his size. Yes, he does, and that is a mistake <laughs> because Grogu who. Uh, Takes those trading darts on the chest like a champ at first, until a little pep talk from Din, and then uses his his innate uh, uh, flipping abilities to to get the upper hand, surprise Ragnar, and quickly launch three paint darts into his chest uh, for the come from behind victory. Very very dramatic, <laughs> um, and and shows that Grogu is quite capable despite his his size and and uh, lack of of. Combat training, I guess, is probably the best way to describe it. Um, interesting that they chose those darts. I think that worked in Grogu's favor. If they had gone with like, swords, it might have gone a different way. <laughs> I don't. Interesting choice uh, as far as the, the weapons for the duel were, were concerned. Uh, but Ragnar, again, he's been ch- he was chastised initially by Din for his overconfidence. Then Paz L'Bizsla weighs in and sort of chastised him and, and sends Ragnar off to the edge of the water to go sulk. Um, where we meet a new predator on this planet. Uh, I don't think it has, at this point, been given a name just yet, but it's a very sort of pterodactyl-like creature. Uh, Scoops up young Ragnar and takes off like a bat out of hell and sends our Mandalorians, all the ones who have the jetpacks, in hot pursuit. Uh, It's a great chase sequence. Again, we're seeing Mandalorians zipping along through these canyons in pursuit of the pterodactyl-like bird, who I just want to call Sauron now. Uh, Sauron, not from Lord of the Rings, Sauron, the X-Men villain from the Savage Land. Uh, so if you're an X-Men fan from the comic books from back in the day, you'll know what I'm talking about. So I just want to call him Sauron from now on. Or call her Sauron, I suppose, is probably more accurate as we find out later in the episode. Uh, but back to the chase, it's, it's a really exciting uh, set piece, action piece, zipping through the canyons. Uh, and never really being able to catch up to, to Sauron in, in that sense, right? Because the, the bird as is, is the wings, the speed, knows how to zip around, and the jetpacks, we find the, the limitations. They run out of fuel. You know, you, you get a burst out of those things, but they don't last forever. Uh, so eventually each Mandalorian uh, taps out and comes back to, to the surface of the planet, uh, unable to continue their pursuit. Uh, and just when we think all is lost, as, as Din and Paz Vizla come down to the ground uh, we see Bo-Katan rocketing ahead in her ship in hot pursuit of the bird and that is where we get our sort of setup up for what this episode is going to be about, recovering the foundling so of course, again this episode is called The Foundling, we focus on several foundlings in this episode uh, because we have Ragnar, we have Grogu we have Din who is also a foundling, uh, and then we have some new foundlings at the end of the episode and we'll talk about the sort of weirdness of all that, but very interesting stuff at the at the least. And so Bo-Katan puts a plan in place to rescue Ragnar. So, let me sort of tell you right now my little nitpick of the episode, right? So, my initial thought when I when I saw this when when it happened when Ragnar is taken, my initial thought was this creature, this 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 pterodactyl-like bird is taking Ragnar so that they can feed their children with it i just that was just sort of like the first thought i had in my head um the fact that it takes a a massive chunk of time to actually get to the rescuing of ragnar i I sort of have to wonder how this bird's uh uh, digestive system works because as we'll see later on you know it's been like roughly a day a full you know or, or at least half a day you know overnight period uh, b- before Sauron returns to try and feed its young uh, and, and sort of coughs up Ragnar from its its, its gullet. Um, but just, <laughs> I just sort of had to wonder about the bird's physiology. It's like, how long has Ragnar been inside that bird's uh, mouth or gut or however they're pro- sort of processing? I'm assuming down in its point, because it has to kind of, kind of like cough it up, like we've seen baby bird, like when Mama Bird feeds baby bird, we've all seen those nature videos. So that kind of does that whole thing. But... You know, how long is Ragnar in there? Does that, does that bird digest slower than the Sarlacc? I guess that's something to ponder. Another interesting part of this is they, they, they note that this has happened before, <laughs> and the Mandalorians still haven't really dealt with this creature, despite the fact that it's taken foulings in the past. Uh, as we see when we get to the nest later on, there there's, there is at least one disposed of Mandalorian bucket in, in, the, in, the, in the, the, the bird's nest there. Um, so it's sort of, I don't know. Interesting that they haven't dealt with this this uh, bird creature more heads-on <laughs> and avenged the death of, of the family that it took last time. But, uh, uh, yeah, just something else that is sort of noted for the episode. Again, it, it's, it's a knit to pick, but it's a very small knit, and it uh, didn't really affect my enjoyment of the episode. It's still a fun episode of the show. Uh, so... Again, Bo-Katan is sort of the, the character of the moment, right? Bo steps up. Bo follows the creature back to its nest, uh, and it reports back to the covert, and that's where they assemble a, to come up with a plan, right? They're going to put together a hunting party and go after this bird. Uh, the nest is on top of a very large rock, as we heard Bo-Katan in the, in the clip say. It reminds her of her days. Uh, climbing Mount Kairut back in basic training, so it thinks this is going to be easy-peasy, uh, she wants, it sounds like she wants to go alone initially, but that sort of is initially is, is just poo-pooed away as Din immediately offers to assist and, and Paz Vizsla will round up, a, another group of the Mandalorians to go with them. I think it's the Shriek Hawk clan, uh, within the Mandalorians or, or at least training group name. It might not be a clan. I don't think it's a clan. Back that, scratch that. So we got a little bit of a hunting party going out there, right? Uh. And so they take the ship out, and as we heard, we don't want to spook the creature. We can't provoke it. We can't use the jetpacks to ascend, so we're going we're gonna to scale the rock by hand. So they get out there, and now it's time to go. You know, they, they get out there, and it's kind of dark. And it's time to camp out there and stay underneath this overhang so that the bird can't sense them. Uh, and, and they're going to go at first light, which, you know, sure, makes sense. Again, I sort of would have thought time was more of, of the essence uh, when it would come to rescuing Ragnar, I, I wouldn't think this bird. I mean, again, unless they know more about this bird's feeding patterns and, and, and time, time frames, um, it seems like a, a, a sort of a reckless move, right? Like, it feels like you should be engaging here. But what we get is a really interesting uh, bit of information here because, again, we're in a war group, we're with the Children of the Watch, and they're going to share a meal together, right? No, not so much, my friends, uh, because Bo has to ask Din. Um, like well, okay, well, how are we supposed to eat these if we can't take off our helmets? And so Din tells you, well, you wait until you go off alone, where no one else can see you, and then you take off your helmet and you eat your food. So this sort of like communal activity of sharing a meal together uh, isn't part of the Children of the Watch's culture. You know, you you don't break bread with with your with your colleagues, with your with your group, with your clan. Um, it's sort of a it's sort of a very interesting. I think flaw in their ideology, uh, because again, you are supposed to be like these brothers and sisters and this, this uh, bonded group, right? But you have to go, and the the very traditional meal shared with your with your with your uh, brothers and sisters in arms. Is, is, is gone. You can't sit around and talk strategy over over a hot meal or over your MREs or anything like that. You're, you're off in a corner isolated with your own thoughts thinking about your own thing. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting system. And again, it, it goes to show how different the children of the Watch are from when, uh, when, when Bo-Katan was in Death Watch. You know, we saw Death Watch take their helmets off a lot. Um, so even they were not as hardline as the children of the Watch. So I think that's very interesting stuff to note. I, again, the, this culture that that, that preaches togetherness, uh, again, has a lot of structure in place to keep them sort of apart at the same time. So that was sort of my, my take on that one aspect of it. Fairly interesting that as the uh, war party leader, that, that Bo-Katan is the one who's allowed to stay by the fire with no helmet to eat her uh, ration kit, right? But I guess that's sort of the honor that she gives, as, as Paz Vizla tells us. Um, What we're going to get into in a moment, as we will find out in in a few moments on the episode, is that that Paz Vizla is the father of Ragnar. Um, So what I thought was interesting, again, we played the clip to open the episode of Ragnar's overconfidence ahead of his duel against Grogu. Uh, Once the reveal of of Paz Vizla being the, the father of Ragnar... I was like, oh, well, now I get the overconfidence, because those vizlas they talk a lot of talk. They are big talkers, for sure. Uh, Paz might be the most subdued of the vizlas that we've met so far, but still very, very interesting stuff Um, right there. So now we will go back a little bit. Turn back time, if you will, just a moment. Before the War Party departed, or actually right after the War Party departed to pursue the beast to save young foundling Ragnar, we get a moment with the Armorer and Grogu, and she sort of summons Grogu into the cave with her to learn about the Forge, the heart of the Mandalorian culture. Uh, and she's imparting some very interesting bits of information to him uh, about sort of, you know, the, the notion that they all started as raw, or uh, they were tested in in the fire of of combat, and uh, you know the various sort of things that we believe that that we know in our hearts about the Mandalorian culture. What this does, though, as she's more forming a— what she's ultimately uh, creating is a, is a signet for, uh, for Grogu to add the next piece of his armor, as she, as she terms it. Uh, but as she's forging this, this signet for him, as she's forging this, this piece of Beskar for him to wear in addition, um, the smashing, the clanking, the, the hammering of the Beskar— Uh, it triggers in him, in Grogu, a flashback. And we see, we go back to the night of Order 66 in the Jedi Temple, uh, and we see Grogu's harrowing escape from the temple, uh, escorted out by several Jedi, protected by several Jedi as they try to make their way out of the temple. Uh, We have to ask ourselves the question, right? How much of this is, do the Jedi, how do I phrase this, right? This is the question. Obviously, Grogu is a small, defenseless, young youngling, right? Young youngling. I like, you like that? <laughs> but so are they just protecting him out of, out of his ability, inability to protect himself? Or is there something more special about him, something more unique about Grogu that we don't know yet? Is there a reason why he warranted this level of uh, effort in, in, in assuring his escape? Or were they were they attempting to do this for all Jedi younglings? You know, at various spots throughout the temple. Um, you know, maybe I'm reading a lot into it. Maybe I'm not. Again, these are those those sort of things that they're playing close to the vest that we're going to get hopefully answers to uh, in time. So we just have to be patient. But a a, a very courageous uh, and again, like I say, I said before, harrowing escape um, as as four Jedi are mowed down by the five O first a five O first that we now know was kind of sort of trained <laughs> against Ahsoka on how to take down Jedi Knights. Um, so yeah, go back to the Star Wars uh, uh, Tales of the Jedi animated series to kind of see what I'm talking about there. Uh, and, you'll, and you'll see that the 501st got a lot of chances to shoot at Ahsoka. Uh, so they got, probably got real proficient at taking down Jedi Knights with lightsabers. Um, but we, we sort of hear this this the Jedi telling them, get him to Kelleran, get him to Kelleran. And for me... As I've already said, I was completely unaware of this kid's show, the Star Wars uh, Jedi Temple Challenge. It was completely off my radar. I, I think maybe I'd heard the name in passing, but I, it was something i had never checked out. And uh, to, so it wasn't until I looked it up later that I found out that this character existed in another form. But the sort of the reveal of Keller and Beck, as played by Ahmad Best, it uh, was delightful. What a, what, a, what a real treat that was for, for me as, again, someone who I had no idea that he played Keller and Beck. I had no idea that uh, he would be reincorporated into Star Wars in this fashion. Uh, and again, I sort of shared a little bit about uh, my best, you know, sort of the journey he's had since being Jar Jar Binks in The Phantom Menace, uh, the way the fandom uh used him as, as, you know, something to burn in effigy, basically, and, and sort of the, the mental toll that took on him as a person. Um, to see him back in Star Wars now after, after you know, 20-something years of, of just kind of being a, a, a whipping boy for, for the Star Wars fandom, uh, just, just, just someone for Star Wars fans to take their frustration out on, um, and particularly fans of my generation who, who sort of rebelled against the prequels, uh, it was so unfortunate. And, you know, we've seen that. that, 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 that unfortunately, the, the fandom has not solved that problem amongst itself, as we now have people in the sequel trilogy that we, we direct our um, feelings towards in a, in a negative way. Um, um, the, you know who I'm talking about. I don't want to go down that road. We, th- we don't need to spiral into, into toxic fandom talk right now. But, again, 20-something years later to see I'm My Best come back. And again, by and large, it feels like the reception for him online has been just one of love and welcoming and and people just so delighted to see him come back. Uh, So, yeah, when the the doors open and the reveal of Keller and Beck as played by Ahmad Best, I was delighted. I was so happy. Again, just knowing a little bit about this guy's uh, history and his journey made me so excited to see him playing Keller and Beck and being the one to, well, again, we don't know for sure at the time, but the one to try and get Gorogu away from Order 66 to get him away from the 501st uh, was thrilling, and it leads to a great piece of aerial, more aerial combat, more aerial escapades. Uh, this time through the through the the skyways of Coruscant, uh, as he is you know attempting to evade capture by the 501st, who's in hot pursuit. And just again, we we're in a major cityscape, uh, but it, it shows you how quickly we go from the Republic to the Empire, as they have no qualms in opening fire on on speeder bikes in public, <laughs> and. Uh, so they damage the speeder. We get, a, we get another shot of the speeder kind of crashing through Monument Square, which we saw in last week's episode in the time of the New Republic. Uh, but interesting to kind of go back to it a, a, again and sort of see you know, the, the peak of the rock there as they, they skitter off. Um, ultimately, what happens is Keller and Beck leads them to some friends of his, as he, as he says, and that are, are going to help them get off planet. Uh, and we find out, we find him going to a, to a platform. Uh, and what ship is waiting for him there? Oh, it's an H-type Nubian yacht. Well, that leads to some questions, doesn't it? Does this mean that perhaps Padme has something to do with helping uh, try to get younglings away as she saw the fire from her apartment of, of, the, of the temple? Or is there another connection here to, to Naboo that we're not unaware of? You know, perhaps uh, Beck has more intimate connections with the royal family that's now currently in power on Naboo, and, and he called in some favors to get access to a ship to save younglings. Maybe specifically Grogu, but perhaps other younglings as well. You know, We're going to have to try and figure out the importance of Grogu. We're going to have to try and learn the importance of Grogu to the Jedi Order at, at some point in the show. Was he, was he simply another youngling, or was there more going on? Because, again, this escape feels very much like we must protect Grogu at all costs, is sort of what it feels like. I could be reading into that a little bit, so let me know what you all think of that, how you read that situation. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what happens here. And so these uh, Royal Naboo guards sacrifice themselves as, as uh, the, the now Imperial clone troopers uh, descend on the platform. And the Naboo Royal Guard give them cover fire so they can make their escape. Uh, there's a little bit of pursuit coming off Coruscant, but they rocket away into hyperspace. To where? We don't know. Naboo? Perhaps. I guess we'll have to see if there's another flashback later on. Uh, in the episode, or I'm sorry, in the series, but really cool that we get another flashback to the night of Order 66. We're filling in more of those blanks on Grogu's backstory, his history, what happened to him that night, and and you know maybe we're going to start to get some answers on just exactly where he's been since that night to now. You know, at some point he falls into Imperial hands, but we don't know for how long he's been in Imperial hands and what the story is there. So that'll be uh, very interesting to see because obviously Keller and Beck at least survives the initial wave of order 66 does he exist as grogu's protector for x amount of years before maybe perhaps being betrayed and or eventually falling to inquisitors or to dark vader himself um which that would be an interesting visual right i mean on that best as keller and beck going up against and against skywalker that's just that's like meta on too many levels for me i can't even comprehend that right now so Again, I'm speculating a little bit, but, you know, we're trying to get some answers on that backstory. We're trying to fill in those blanks on Grogu's backstory, and that's really cool. That's really exciting stuff, and I can't wait to see what they do next. So now we'll catch back up with the war party, and it's first light, and it's time to scale the mount to reach the top of the peak where the nest lies. And hopefully they will find Ragnar, young foundling Ragnar, who's now an apprentice, right? They keep calling him a foundling. But <laughs> by the, the by what Din told us, he should be an apprentice now. He took the creed and he's wearing the helmet. I don't know distinction points, right? Who cares? It's all it's all good. We know what they're talking about. We know who they're talking about. But anyways, so now it's time to scale the mountain. And I thought it was pretty interesting watching Din and Bo and some of these other members of the uh, the where is it the uh, I already I already lost it the Screehawk group. Uh, it's skiing the mountain and then you watch Paz Vizla who is a big dude, Paz Vizla big guy. So when he starts scaling, like you hear the huffing and the puffing, like that's some work for that guy. That's a big man to be in that sort of like vertical position ascending a top the top of a rock. I don't know how many of you big guys out there listening do this on your on your free time, but it takes some that uh, takes some uh, some lower body strength <laughs> for sure. Hope he didn't squ- uh, skip on leg day cuz he's going to need it probably some good core strength in there too, you know, it's not, all, not all about the arms on that one. <laughs> so we reach the top, uh, and, and they're trying to be cool, right? They're, they're trying to play, uh, they're trying to play it cool. They do a thermal, uh, Dan does a thermal imaging scan. sees a heat source. They think it's maybe going to be, uh, uh, Ragnar off in the distance. And so that sends, instead of waiting for, for Bo-Katan's uh, command, cause the, the bird's not there, so they don't know what's happening. Um, but they're, you know, Paz Vizsla will not wait any longer, and it, this is when he reveals that Ragnar is his son, and so he must save his boy from the giant bird. Um, well, what happens is, and again, this is when we see the, the, the empty bucket of another family who's been picked apart by the bird, the baby birds, actually, because that's what happens. It turns out the heat source is actually three little baby birds of this creature, and they're not so little. Um, they're a little in comparison to its mother, but still very large and pretty formidable, right? It's at this point that the mother returns, and, and Paz uh, pulls some, some sticks over himself so that he can't be seen, right? Uh, and this is when Mama Bird, sort of like a Mama Sauron, <laughs> sort of like coughs up uh, uh, Ragnar from her gullet, and, and it's feeding time. And again, this is sort of when I ask myself, like, how long has he been in there? <laughs> like, has he been breathing okay? The no digestive enzymes, like, you know, eating through his, his clothes or anything? All right, uh, we'll go with that. That's just the way we're going to do things on this episode. Okay. Okay. Uh, but this is where the action springs in, in, in as, as Din and Bo and everybody else uh, attempts to free Ragnar, save Ragnar, uh, and, and take down this bird creature who's been uh, hunting families now for a while. So this leads to another excellent piece of aerial cinematography uh, as, as our hunting party... Goes after the bird, goes after Ragnar. It's a great sequence. Uh, lots of good action in there. Ragnar getting flipped around, Paz Vizsla getting flipped around, Din in hot pursuit, Bowen in hot pursuit. Uh, Bo Katan at one point gets her uh, right shoulder pauldron knocked off, since spiraling down. So now she's a pauldron short, which will set up our stuff at the end. Um, and, you know, I, I don't need to do to sort of like recap the entire uh, uh, cinematography of the of the sequence here but it's great it's it's really good action sequence really greatly directed Carl Weathers knocks it out of the park Uh, he gets like some really awesome sequences to do here action base you know you got the first the pursuit through the canyons uh, as the bird escapes with Ragnar you get the action sequence on Coruscant during Order 66 Uh, and then you get another aerial sequence all three of them like aerial sequences uh, here as they they battle uh, Sauron Mama Sauron uh, to free Ragnar and eventually the Mandalorians are able to get the upper hand they send the, 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 the Sauron, Mama Sauron, into the water where, in typical Star Wars fashion, uh, our giant, another giant uh, alligator turtle beast eats Mama Sauron, as Qui-Gon taught us. There's always a bigger fish, right? So <laughs> that what sort of brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, the hunting party returns to the camp, encampment to the covert, uh, successfully with Ragnar. Uh, and somehow, they have also crammed on those three little baby birds as well into their ship with everybody else uh, and, and <laughs> excuse me that was my dog shaking right there um, <laughs> and as <laughs> as they pull those birds off they are introduced as three new foundlings I can only assume this means that uh, much like the, uh, the the beast riders of Onderon uh, the Mandalorians the, the are going like, to train these, these creatures these, these flying animals uh, and 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 make them part of like sort of like their arsenal, right? Like we'll have uh, Mandalorians riding on these things. We'll have Mandalorians riding on Mythosaurs. We'll have Mandalorians riding on Rancors. Mandalorians are just gonna be riding on all the Star Wars creatures you can think of. Mandalorians riding on Wampas. It's it's it's, it's going to happen. Wampa based combat. It's gonna be awesome. Get ready for it, okay? So, yeah, I mean, prepare yourself. I I don't imagine they're gonna be families in the sense that they uh, they get to go wear, go wear armor or anything like that. Or at least not you know. Not buckets, right? That'd be weird. So who, what do I know? Maybe they will. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wild? Just play them out in all the best guard. Best guard apparently is not that limited anymore. I guess they found a bunch more in the intervening years uh, since season one when it was a lot more of a hot commodity. <laughs> but any hoot. So as Bo's basically, I think this is Beau's, this is Bo's plan, right? Like she wants to do this. She wants to ingratiate herself to this this new community of Mandalorians, kind of prove her worth, prove her medal. And and show herself as a capable leader. So last week I sort of I sort of speculated a little bit. I sort of like said, "Hey, the armorer better watch her back, uh, because because Bo's about to put a vibro blade through it." But I'm not so sure that's the case anymore because I'm not sure that the armorer is necessarily like the leader per se. I think that perhaps the armorer is um, sort of like. Sort of like the preacher in in the in this cult, right? Like they are the one who uh, has they have the all the religious information that they need. But she's sort of like a placeholder right now for until an actual like leader steps up to the plate. You know, uh, the armor is there to keep them on the path, to keep them uh, following the way, right? To have them following the creed, but. I think, in a sense, maybe that the, they are actually sort of leaderless, and Bo maybe now sees a chance to step up and assert herself as the leader of the Children of the Watch, perhaps in partnership with the Armor. Now we'll we'll, we'll have to wait to see how that all shakes out. I could be wrong. You know, maybe maybe Bo Katan will feel threatened by the Armor and, and feel that they have to uh, eliminate the Armor to take control of the, of the group. Though that seems like a bad miscalculation, since the Armor seems to be the only one able to forge uh, Baskar into what they need into the materials they need into the armor they need so I would think keeping the armor al- alive makes way more sense but that's just me personally you probably all agree too you probably like like when I said it last week you probably why would he, why would you kill the armor like who's gonna make the armor then because that's practical that's a practical answer <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> so yeah but you get a really interesting conversation here because the armor uh, sort of in, in gratitude first saving the, the family, is offering to replace the shoulder pauldron that Bo-Katan lost. And initially, uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say initially, but, if, uh, well, okay. At first, the armor asks, like, should I, should I, you know, put the signet of the night owls on this new right shoulder pauldron of yours to, to match the left one? Uh, and Bo pauses and, and sort of asks the question about the mythosaur, like, can I wear both? Can I have both? And since the mythosaur is the signet that belongs to all Mandalorians, she can. It is acceptable. And this is what Bo chooses to do. Uh, and it leads to a very, very interesting conversation that will play in a moment. Uh, one thing I want to talk about real quick as well. Uh, I thought about talking about it last week, but I wasn't sure if it, if it was intentional or not, or just sort of like something that sort of happened throughout the course of the episode. Um, but pay attention to the way that uh, Katie Sackoff has sort of changed her, her speech cadence, right? The way she talks now that she's spending more time with the Watch, right, with the children of the Watch. When she's with the armor, when she's with other members like Paz Vizsla, uh, she talks in a much more cadenced way, uh, in, in a sense, sort of like what Din Djarin's like, sort of what she, like what she's heard from the armor and, and Paz Vizla himself. Uh, it, it has a very unique cadence. She doesn't talk this way, like with Grogu, or like off to the side with Din, uh, because they have a relationship here. So... I, I we, we, Again, we have to ask ourselves the question, is, is, is Bo-Katan Kree's playing a role to sort of get this acceptance, to get what she wants from these Mandalorians that she thinks that maybe maybe she can rally to her side and to her cause? Um, I really like this conversation between – I'm not going to answer that question. I just sort of left that there. <laughs> I left that hanging and then I moved on. Sorry. But I sort of like that we don't know yet. We're waiting to see. We're waiting to find out. Because I think what happens in this conversation between Bo-Katan and the armorer is very, very interesting. And it's going to cause Bo, and I think ourselves as the audience, to um, consider what we think we saw. So let's go ahead and play the sequence. It's a little bit long. I'm sure I'll get in trouble with somebody at Disney. But let's just play it. Here we go. What would you say if I told you I saw one? That you saw what? A mythosaur. I would say you are very lucky. It is a noble vision. No, I, I... mean a real one. Beneath the living waters, on Mandalore. When you choose to walk the way of the Mandalore, you will see many things. But it was real. This is the way. So, how? I I love that. I love that sort of ambiguity here at the end of the episode. Uh, We're now, something that that beau took 100% for real, right? But she's the only one who saw it. And she thought that gave her an advantage. Now, it's sort of being questioned, right? Like, this is this a vision? Is this you know your reward for your for your re- restored faith in the way in the creed in the, the true Mandalorian lifestyle, right? So I think she has to kind of pause and consider herself, and I, I like that quite a bit. I think as an audience we have to pause and consider, like, did Bo see what we think Bo saw? Um, is Bo gonna take off back to Mandalore to, to try and, and 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 confirm somehow that that she saw this mythosaur? Um, I don't know. It's very interesting, and it makes us look back on what we saw in in the past in that episode itself, in the Minds of Mandalore. Um, was that real? Din didn't see it. Bo, in a moment of of lost faith, uh, hopelessness, sees a mythosaur, and now is sort of reconnected to the way, to the Mandalorian lifestyle, to the Mandalorian lifestyle, to the Mandalorian culture, right? Um... And it took seeing the mythosaur. So was it a vision or was it real? Uh, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting uh, notion. Uh, I, I, If you want to know my opinion, I believe the mythosaur is real. I believe the mythosaur is in the, in the living waters in the Mines of Mandalore. Um, and that at some point, a character on this show will ride a mythosaur because we're just going to be riding everything. I've already told you about this. We're riding wampas. It's happening. Get ready. Get ready for domestically trained wampas. Going to be awesome. Buckle up. <laughs> so so that's just my opinion but I like that we're sort of exploring the idea that uh, the mythosaur is sort of something that, that, that puts you back on the path or re- the mythosaur is sort of something that, that is, is a reward for your faithfulness to the way, to the creed um, so I dig that a lot and, and I like the idea that we're sort of playing with the idea did Bo really see this? I think that's very, very interesting stuff and I want to see where they take it you know, they, they may not go the ways I, want, I think they're going to go with it. They, they may not explore this as fully as maybe I think they will. But it's a very interesting aspect to think about. You know, again, we're talking about a religious cult here without trying to make it into like a religious cult. You know, Star Wars is kind of tap dancing a little bit here around the uh, scary culty things that a cult is. Um, <laughs> but we're exploring faith in a way, right? Which is which is something that we did a lot of in, in the Star Wars films with the Jedi, right? Jedi and Sith different ideologies different faiths now we're looking at the mandalorians as as a culture as a as a faith as a religion um and that's fascinating and i think this is a really interesting way to end this episode with some ambiguity with Bo sort of beginning to question did she see what she saw you know she didn't touch it she just saw it and, and interpreted it as what she saw Who's to say at this point? But I, I, again, I do believe the mythosaur is there. I do believe the mythosaur is real. I do believe that the mythosaur will rally the Mandalorians at some point on the show. So, I'm taking that on faith. Let's see what Bo-Katan does next. Um, <laughs> and I think that's where we're going to leave this episode. Uh, let me know what you all thought about it. It's it's it's, it's I think it's a really enjoyable episode. Again, there's some you can nits, you, you can pick some nits. Uh, with some of the storytelling elements, uh, mostly from the hunting party thing, there's there's some stuff that you can kind of pull apart if you want. Uh, if you want to pull in those 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 threads, you could. Uh, but I think by and large, this is a really solid episode. I think the runtime is perfectly appropriate. You know, it would be nice to kind of delve into more of the the backstory, the the, the Order sixty six flashback. But again, that's one of those things that they're going to dole out in when they're getting ready to. We're gonna we're gonna get that in bits and pieces from from here on out, right? I say that next week's episode will be full-blown. <laughs> Keller and Beck and, and Grogu on on Naboo for 45 minutes. <laughs> so, been wrong before. Well, not the first time, not the last time, my friends. Not the first time, not the last time. Uh, but I dig this episode. Uh, I, I think people are, are knocking it for no real good reason whatsoever. Uh, love it, though. It's good stuff. Eight buckets for me big fan uh, again i like i like where they're moving the pieces i like their, how they're setting the table here uh they're putting Bo in a position to take control of the children of the watch and once that happens when is it when will she make a play for the darksaber right because that'll be what cements everything and that'll be or is that how she takes control of the, of the watch right like there, there comes to be a point. Her and Din disagree on something, and a challenge is issued. And we've seen how capable Bo-Katan is. And we've seen that Din is capable-ish, but probably not nearly as skilled a warrior as Bo-Katan is after all these years. Uh, So let's see what happens here. Four episodes left in this season, so get ready, because you know it's all coming to a head. These things... You know, everyone gets all upset because the show, like, quote, unquote, meanders for too long. Uh, and then, like, the final three or four, three or four episodes, it, it's, it rockets to its finish, and we get great episodes. So st- stay tuned, all right? Eight buckets, my friends. All right, we're going to wrap this up. We went really long on this. We, we talked for almost, like, 40 minutes about a show that was 30 minutes long. Unbelievable. So <laughs> another reminder, uh, follow us on social media at Mando underscore Vision, Twitter and Instagram. Email the show, mandovisiontom at gmail.com. Make sure to like, subscribe, follow, and share the show with all the Mandalorians in your covert. Another way to support the show that would be super, super helpful, five-star reviews. Review all the buckets in the world. We would love it so, so much. They really help the small independent shows like us stand out, and we appreciate you taking the time and effort to do that. My name is Tom Nargai Tom, this is the MandaVision podcast, and we thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's always great to have the support of Buckethead Nation. Uh, one of our, our most ardent, fervent members of Buckethead Nation, rural fanboy, don't worry, got your email. We'll be talking about it soon. and stay tuned. Like I said, we have a lot coming up in the next few uh, episodes of the show that might be back to back to back. So thank you for the email and, and stay tuned, my friend. Thank you. All right, we're getting out of here. Let's wrap this puppy up. <laughs> I'll talk to you tomorrow because we're doing the Bad Batch. All right, my friends, Buckethead, my friends in Buckethead Nation, thank you again. Be great Star Wars fans. Uh, uh, tell the, the, the angry Star Wars fans to pump the brakes and just just enjoy the beautiful buffet that's before them. That is Star Wars. This podcast can only end one way. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way.